from PRX. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 You might have heard our bit of Studio 360 news. We've just moved our offices and studios to Slate Magazine in Brooklyn, which means I'm excited. We're all excited here about making great news stories and interviews for the radio show and expanding our podcast offerings as well about meeting our new Slate colleagues and figuring out the best ways for Studio 360 to collaborate and cross-pollinate with them. So as we spend this month settling in, we will be sharing on the show some of our favorite segments from the last couple of years to introduce ourselves to new listeners who may be finding us through Slate and to remind you and ourselves of some of the excellent things that can happen when people talk into microphones. Think of this month's shows as a set of Studio 360 chocolate sampler boxes. You bite in and the delicious mystery at our center will be revealed. This week, stories all about music. In the early and mid-1990s, the Pacific Northwest was the epicenter of the American rock music world. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Slater Kinney. The band was great and incredibly influential. Esquire magazine called them the best band ever. I talked to Carrie Brownstein, Slater Kinney's best-known founding member, a couple of years ago. She had just published a memoir about the band's rise and fall and resurrection called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. For Carrie, it all started at a Madonna concert, and not just any Madonna concert. It was 1985, and Madonna had just exploded, and she was on her Like a Virgin tour. She started the tour in Seattle, which is where I saw her, and I saw her on the first night. So I was a concert virgin, and, and she was a virgin of some sort. I was on my feet the entire time. It was the first time I had a sense kind of being taken out of body from music, feeling myself in this environment of fans, and uh, it was very... Very exhilarating. And so it was the communal fan ecstasy as much as the music? I mean, the music was secondary to just the experience of, you know, looking around and seeing all these other people in in various states of crying or screaming, sweating. It's a very sensual, physical experience. You know, and as a person only in fifth grade, (laughs) I mean... Usually I was just sweating during a soccer game, you know, but to suddenly just be in this sort of like collective sauna of awe. Yeah. Yeah, I came home and I could not sleep. I was so excited. And I remember my parents, I went into their room and my dad just laughed and said, you're high, which I also didn't understand what that meant, you know. Did you understand what like a virgin meant at 10? Barely. (laughs) Yeah. Barely. How cute Uh, for your parents. Um, 
you you seem this very low key present person. Seeing you on stage, you you rock and you jump and you throw yourself around. Is, is uh, do you feel like a different person when you're when you're behaving in this wild rock and roll star way on stage? Yeah, I do, and and I like the transformative quality and what a stage allows you to do, which one is believing yourself, uh, especially uh, with music that has volume and loudness, as uh, Slater Kinney does, it kind of creates this sort of buffer between your sort of quotidian self and your performer self, and you are just allowed within that sphere to explore. And there's so few real-life pedestrian moments where you're allowed to express anger or even sheer sort of undiltrated joy or danger. I mean, people can't right. do that. People, Thank goodness. You, yes, it's it's not, so it's you not appropriate. Can, you can play a character, but it's a character that is a version of you. It's, in some ways, it feels like I'm moving closer to a version of myself that has really been the self that has saved me most of the time. Right. I want to play a Slater Kinney song from your seventh album from a decade ago, The Woods. It's called Jumpers. So talk about how that song came to be. Uh, There was a brief period of time when I was living in the Bay Area. Uh, I felt very displaced down there. There was such a disparity between these bright, beautiful, cloudless days and uh, this encroaching depression. And as uh, anyone knows, that's suffered depression, and that's something that I've uh, suffered with um, most of my adult life, um, it creates a colorless world. So, uh, and if you, the more in contrast you feel to your environment, the more pronounced that set, that sense of despair can be. So I was sort of living in this beautiful place and feeling very lost. Uh, I was reading an article uh, in The New Yorker by Tad Friend called Jumpers. Uh, it was about... Uh, suicides on the Golden Gate Bridge, and it, it was a harrowing article. It, it was about actually the survivors, uh, a very small percentage of people that have survived uh, the attempted suicide off that bridge. Um, I remember that piece, and, and, and I still think about the fact of the survivors who said, as soon as I jumped, I regretted yes, it. Yes, <laughs> that that's a haunting, that's a haunting part of that story. And uh, what I wanted to write about was, 
you know, this 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 strange, just this combination of of something that signifies, you know, architectural prowess and structure and solidity and a symbol of progress in the city. That it could both be that and and a, a place of despair, and um, that the ways that people hope that cannot find meaning in their life, their last hope is that they'll find it in their death. That to me is is very sad, and I related to it a lot then. And and ten years later, do you do you relate to it in a different way? You know, when I when Slater Kinney, we went on hiatus for about ten years. Uh, this year, we came back and that made, doesn't count as breaking up and coming back together. Sure, you can. <laughs> yeah. semantics, yeah. semantics. We broke up. We went on hiatus. Uh, anyway, we, we we weren't playing music together yeah. for almost a decade. And uh, when we came back together to start writing "No Cities to Love," we started out playing some of our old songs just to reconnect and. I remember we practiced Jumpers. It's one of our, collectively, it's one of our favorite songs. And I realized I was singing it about living this time, which is which is a big change. Yeah. So, yeah, I think of it differently now. You, in the book, you, you write a lot about this, this uncomfortable tension mm-hmm. that you and your bandmates had when the first the first time you were a band together, uh, and that that was essential to your sound, as uncomfortable as it was. Yeah, I think, I think all creative partnerships have a volatility to them by nature because it's you I can't imagine being in a creative collaboration with someone I agree with all the time sure I would just be a solo artist at that point uh, and, and the nature of the music did that seem like oh we should be angry at each other no <laughs> no I don't think so I mean I I think in, in fact when the band is most galvanic is when all cylinders are firing and we are a collective force moving in the same direction. I mean, that is the aspiration. Uh, that is the hope. But I think in the process of that, um, it helps just foster a, a better song, a more interesting song. Right. So we're each adding our ideas. But no, certainly, I, d- I never liked getting on stage uh, when we if we were having tension within the band. Um, yeah. You can play that out on stage. But that, to me is not a drama that I want to witness and it's not one I want to be a part of because yeah. um, it shuts off communication. And and then often if that started, if we started a show like that, which I should say is very rare, we would end the show together. Yeah. You, in the book you talk about the tour uh, in support of, of the album The Woods that that song was, that we played before is on. Being really tough, you were in a terrible place uh, and, and you describe it very starkly and vividly. Uh, do you have a single most vivid memory from that time? I can think of one in the book, and I don't know if that's <laughs> it. But well, was, I mean, my body had kind of been rejecting tour for years. Tour is a very fragmentary existence. It's peripatetic. It is destabilizing. Right. And so my body had kind of been screaming out for years, like, please stop, please slow down. Uh, and I've, in some ways, I felt like I was touring emergency rooms. I felt like I've seen... I've seen a hospital in so many cities. Really? <laughs> yeah, Leicester in in England, uh, Denver, Seattle. Because you 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 were just not like bummed out. You were breaking down. Yeah, I was having panic attacks and back going out. You know, just it kind of all came to a head um, in in Belgium in 2006. And I describe in the book of a very uh, self annihilating moment um, that unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, happened. Period, but also happened in front of my bandmates, and and really, you punched yourself in the face. Yeah, I I, I try to imagine what that means. 
It means exactly. I mean, they're, really, you can really sock yourself. Yeah, please don't try it. But um, don't worry. <laughs> you're like, don't worry. I'm I'm not crazy. Um, well, I'm not crazy either. But I will say that um, there uh, there's an essayist I love, Charles D'Ambrosio. In an interview, he he talks about this idea. One reason he writes is sort of the dream of making the distance go away. And I felt like I had really tried so hard to uh, assemble. Uh, a life, uh, a substitution for family that I didn't feel like I had. But by being detached, I was creating loss and longing. And I think it just, I got to the point where I was a divided self and that I couldn't function like that anymore. And that's what, you know, broke up the band. In retrospect, it was actually a good time to go out. Um, it wasn't a good way to go out, but it was not a bad time. And then you didn't pick up a guitar or sing or you just like went cold turkey for a few years. A few years, I uh, wrote for NPR Music. I did a blog, uh, volunteered at a humane society, worked at an ad agency. I threw myself into a lot of different jobs. Uh, then Janet Weiss, the drummer of Slater Kinney, and I um, were in a band called Wild Flag. And then I started Portlandia with Fred Armisen. Which just finished its fifth season, which makes the passage of time seem too fast. Um, two of my favorite characters on, on the show uh, work in uh, the feminist bookstore. I want to play a clip. Uh, you are Tony, and Fred Armisen is Candace, and uh, her son, played by Bobby Moynihan, comes in with his baby. And, and, and for sensitive listeners, uh, warning, 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 uh, they're going to discuss anatomy. Why don't you get something here in our Why store buy- for Valerie? There's nothing here. For, for Valerie. Do you want this vagina pillow? I don't want that vagina pillow. We have so many. We have 13 vagina pillows. My entire bed looks like uh, looks like a bunch of women exploded on it. That's one room. So there's other rooms in the house that you could... You just give each other vagina pillows every Christmas? I don't need a vagina pillow. No one does. And especially for the little one. The Wait, little one. one does not need a vagina pillow. He doesn't need uh, one. We don't want to know the... The gender of the baby. We don't want to know the sex, and you know that. I don't know your gender. I don't know Candace's. I don't know mine. You don't know my gender? I don't. Do I look like a woman? I don't know what a woman looks like. <laughs> that is from the third season of Portlandia. Um, knowing who you are, now having read this book, you clearly have fondness uh, for that subculture and these subcultures that you're satirizing and parroting, but you're pretty effectively and some might think viciously uh, satirizing them. Um, is, is the kind of sort of self-regard and and uh, jargon and all that stuff that we heard in that in that bit, uh, is that endemic to progressives, to, to humans in any little world? What, what's your take on that? I mean, if we are hyper-concerned about, you know, organic versus local or, you know, how our coffee is made. Like, but the, the certain kind of worries are just a privilege. You know, sometimes right. I think that that, those, that narcissism of small things can, can start to be corrosive and you think, huh, I wonder if, we, if, if we're heading in the right direction with this preciousness. And I think Portlandia, we're not sitting outside of it looking in. We're right. very much engaged right. in right. it. Right. And so I think we're, we're trying to be part of an ongoing conversation that's already happening where people are wondering, Huh, these sort of highly curated selves that we're projecting, <laughs> these highly yes. curated neighborhoods yes. that are just reflections of our highly curated selves, 
is this actually, is this making us better people? I think some of us are wondering whether maybe that's not so true anymore. And that's essentially what Portland is about. Well said. For, you know, the the kind of rock and roller that you were and are, the seri- serious, indie, edgy person, to go to uh, satirical comedy improv, I-, I know both kinds of people, and I- I've never met one who seemed remotely like the other. Do you know? Yeah, I I think the the common through line is observation, is analysis, is a desire to connect. Um, in some ways, Portlandia. When I talk about um, immersing myself in a, a very earnest world of of music and one that I'm very protective of and feel and take very seriously, and the the kind of music I play, there's a darkness to it. That is intense, and I think Portlandia in some ways has allowed an unmasking, uh, a levity that I think I really n- require yeah. and appreciate. So to me, they complement each other. I can see that. And and so, yeah. Because they are not adjacent. It's yes. not like, oh, I'm doing this different kind of music now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how does TV fandom feel compared to rock star fandom? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I one time I was at an airport in San Francisco, and earlier this year, uh, season five of Portlandia premiered within a week of Slater Kinney's new album "No Cities to Love" coming coming out. And uh, I was having, a, you know, sitting down, having a drink before my flight. A couple to the right of me said, "Hey, we love Portlandia. Can we get your picture?" And I said, "Sure, no problem." And then another couple came up to me on my left, and they glared at the other couple. (laughs) And they said, we don't know your show, but we have been fans of your band for a very long time, and we don't need your picture. (laughs) That's like, we should have that on tape. (laughs) It was beautiful, and I loved both couples. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, Final question. Uh, so what song should we play as we end this thing? It can either be one of your songs. It can be any song you wish. You know what? Let's play something from the new Joanna Newsom album, Divers. What a gift to this world Joanna Newsom is. Let's play track number two from her new album, Divers. You sound like an NPR record uh, anchor. I'm not bad at it. Carrie Brownstein, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I talked with Carrie Brownstein in 2015. The eighth and final season of Portlandia will air next year. Coming up. There's still something in, in common with the kind of repetitive, almost this taffy is, you know, pulling slowly and this kind of musical goo in a way. And I don't mean that in any derogatory way. The glorious and gooey music of Twin Peaks. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI in association with Slate. month, we're settling into new offices and new studios with our new colleagues at Slate Magazine. 
Slate makes some of my favorite podcasts, such as Trumpcast, on which I've been a guest. It's a show about our unlikely president that usually begins with an actor reading some of POTUS's actual recent tweets. I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Micah along with Psycho Joe came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve? That's John Domenico reading real tweets as President Trump on Slate's Trumpcast. So as we unpack and settle in this month with Slate, we wanted to share with you some of our favorite Studio 360 segments from the last couple of years. This week, it's all about music. When David Lynch's Twin Peaks was getting its reboot on Showtime this last spring, we did a Studio 360 hour on what made the original show so great in the early 90s and so influential ever since. One of those defining characters was the score by Angelo Badalamenti. David would sit right over here, right to the right of me, and we would put a little cassette just about over here on this keyboard. In the documentary Secrets from Another Place, Badalamenti describes how Lynch finessed him into musicalizing some of the show's major themes without showing him any footage. just, Just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind, and I started playing... Badalamenti's approach smashed the conventions for how to score a dramatic TV series. Two composers, both creators of well-known TV themes themselves, explain how that happened. You know, it's like, uh, wow, everything's just so great, nobody dies, everyone's happy. But there is just this little tinge of something. My name is Dave Porter. And I'm a composer for film and television, probably best known for Breaking Bad and its uh, current prequel, Better Call Saul. Hi, I'm Mark Snow. I am a composer, TV and film. I wrote music for the X-Files, and today we're going to be talking about the great Twin Peaks and especially the marvelous music of Angelo Badalamenti. The landscape for music and television when I was a teenager, we're talking the 80s, was pretty bleak. The music for those shows had a certain formulaic approach where I think the composer was not particularly encouraged to get off the reservation too much. In those days, music was called upon to cover up a lot of other sins. Bad acting, uh, poor writing, and music also had to be made quickly and cheaply. And all those things together put the composer often in a bind. If I hadn't heard about Twin Peaks or David Lynch or any of this, and I was surfing around on... TV, and I heard that music. I would think maybe it was like a a mild Western, (laughs) almost, hearing that guitar. 
never in a hurry to do anything. And things are pitched low, uh, but they're also just moseying along at a very deliberate tempo. I know from experience, directors and producers would always be talking about, we gotta save this scene, it needs more pulse, it can't be too slow, it don't know, it can't repeat like that, we, you know, it's just gotta bang, you know, forward and all that kind of thing. And here's this piece that just kind of sits there. There, there is a beauty that I love of using particularly old synthesizers. They weren't always the best at staying exactly in tune. A synthesizer would have a, a chip or an engine in, in, that would play each key, and each key might be slightly off from the next. And there's a little of that in there that I also adore that, that has that little bit of darkness. Why are we from the birds sing a fresh song? And there's always music in the air. I'm not sure which one of them said, <laughs> hey, let's try this cool jazz for this part. But again, it's a, a marvelous choice. It does seem to fit, doesn't it? It defies expectation of why or how it fits, other than the tempo, which is very down, and the overall moodiness of it. There's still something in common with the kind of repetitive, almost this taffy is, you know, pulling slowly, and this kind of musical goo in a way, and I don't mean that in any derogatory way. Again, it's in the key of C. Now, I know Angelo can write music <laughs> in a lot of keys, but I think that part of the choice of having all of these pieces we're discussing in the same key of C continues the theme of, of the moody, hypnotic quality of it. Uh, in my own work, I'm wary of repetition and repeating things exactly the same way for, for a lot of reasons. For one, people watch shows so differently now and it's entirely possible that someone would be sitting on the couch and watching three hours in a row of the show you're working on. And if you have you know, a theme X for character X, a few times an hour, suddenly you've tripled that and it can easily become overkill. Uh, but that certainly wasn't the case. I mean, we, we waited an awfully long seven days to get to the next Twin Peaks that first year. May I have your attention, please? This is Principal Wolchek. I am deeply saddened to have to tell you that early this morning, your classmate, Laura Palmer, was found dead. This is a terrible moment for all of us. For all of us. still gives me chills. Gives me goosebumps. I love it. It's just a very, very heavy analog synthesizer. And when that super low bass octave comes in, you can feel it in your chest. 
and then it makes this crazy turn, right? Into the Laura that used to be, as opposed to Laura in the bag on the beach. It's building, and oh, it's beautiful and more beautiful. And then a, a climax. Oh, yes, here we are at the top of the beauty. And now here's here's a moment where it's big and sweeping, almost operatic, actually. But it's all in contrast to what he set up before. And then, yeah, we're back to, you know, we're back to the dark world again. It's an A-flat major chord with the third on the bass. Actually, in the X-Files theme, the accompaniment figure was exactly those notes, but it was arpeggiated like... was the same thing. That's Angelo's and this and mine is. Even though these pieces are seemingly disparate, um, when you hear one, you're instantly transported into that world. Even if you're in another room and you hear it but don't see it, you're going to know that that's what it is. Porter, who composed the music for Breaking Bad and these days is doing so for Better Call Saul and The Blacklist. We also heard from Mark Snow, who was the composer for X-Files and now for the show Blue Bloods. Our piece was produced by Tommy Bazarian and Jocelyn Gonzalez. I've done hundreds of interviews on Studio 360 with established and emerging artists and writers and performers. But we also sometimes like to look at how the work those people make resonates with the people who watch and read and listen to it. How it amuses us, moves us, sometimes even changes us. And also how complicated our relationships can be with something like a painting or movie. Which is why we recently introduced a regular feature called Guilty Pleasures. It's about that thing that you love that would surprise people because it doesn't seem to jibe with your taste or personality or because it is so unfashionable or unpopular. One of our favorite guilty pleasures so far came from a serious indie rocker. My name is Kelly Pratt. I'm a musician. I have a band called Bright Moments, and I've played with a number of other artists, including Beirut and Arcade Fire, David Byrne, St. Vincent. My guilty pleasure is the Eagles, already gone. The Eagles suck. What do you think about the Eagles? They suck. I hate the Eagles. God, do I hate that band. Eagles suck, bro. Deal with it. Because I'm already 
People really hate the Eagles. They're like not a cool band to like. First of all, Southern rock is not really that well respected amongst like indie rock people, hip hop people, electronic music folks, you know, classical music, jazz folks. Like it's it's very popular amongst, you know, a lot of people, but it it's not it's not taken seriously. Along the same lines, you know, there's a reason people don't like the Eagles so much in a lot of Southern Rockets because it's so ubiquitous. You hear these songs over and over and over and over again. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. And, you know, you can only hear them so many times before you start to hate it. When I gave this song a second chance, I was in the grocery store. Here in Portland, like a lot of the grocery stores will play Animal Collective and Elliot Smith and cool music. But if you go to the Safeway, they're playing, you know, Eagles. <laughs> first listen, this song is pretty straightforward, standard Eagles. Uh, it's a guitar-driven rocker, standard breakup lyrics, a lot of patented Eagleisms in here. But when you start to pay attention to it, there's a lot more little fun stuff in there. Aside from the real long guitar solo in the middle of the song, there are a number of real short one to two bar guitar solos um, at the end of each little verse phrase. Those are pretty tasteful. There's a couple of them that are quite weird. Uh, almost avant-garde. It's probably interesting to call the Eagles avant-garde in any way. The other thing that really takes this song to the next level for me is uh, after the third or fourth chorus, I, I believe about three minutes and 20 seconds in, there is a modulation, otherwise known as a change of key. So this is really common in pop music, particularly at the end of a song. Think uh, I Will Always Love You, Whitney Houston. There's a whole step modulation near the end of that song. And I will always love you. I will always Golden Lady by Stevie Wonder. The last couple minutes of that song is a continuous series of modulations of a half step up. But this Eagles modulation is an interval of a fourth, which is quite large uh, of a modulation for a pop song. There's one other I can think of, uh, Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. 
Now that song continually modulates a fourth throughout the whole song and makes it a bit of a gimmick. But in the Eagles song, it really takes it up a notch uh, and really sends those vocals soaring towards the end for the last couple of choruses. So that's my guilty pleasure, Eagles, already gone. Listen and enjoy it afresh. That was Kelly Pratt, and that piece was produced by Julia Lowry Henderson. So what's a cultural thing you love that's really unexpected or uncool? Tell us about it, and we may feature you on the show. Email us at studio360 at pri.org. Still ahead? Hi, hi, howdy, howdy, hi, hi. Where everyone is minus, you can call me multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm the guy. You can get my fingers and I'm not waving high. Haters to the bird, more like a The giddy music of Shamir Bailey, live in Studio 360 from PRI in association with Slate. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me. Studio 360. This month, we're settling into cool new offices and studios at Slate, so we are playing this month some of our favorite recent Studio 360 segments this week about music. Like Beyonce, Shamir Bailey goes by just his first name, Shamir. He's only 22, and in the last four years, he's gone from being this high school kid in Las Vegas to somebody the music cognoscenti cannot stop talking about. Shamir's music is a singular concoction of disco and country and rap and more. What ties it all together is his incredible giddy energy and absolutely distinctive voice. Shamir came by our studio to play a few songs off his debut album, Ratchet. He started with a performance of Demon. Grow your nights of the lane I trust the code you and leave so much shame 
song Demon with Davion Canada on drums, Tiffany Payne on backing vocals, and Danielle McGinley on keyboards and vocals. So you learn to play the guitar at 9 or 10. You perform at a talent show. Then at some point, did you just start playing gigs or, or, or did it stay in your bedroom? No, then I started like I this is like when I was like trying to do like more like acoustic folk, like country stuff. And I, did, I went to like a few honky tonks, did a few country competitions. and Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Southern Nevada honky tonk country competitions. Actually. You must have stood out. Exactly. <laughs> it's very off-putting for a lot of people. Was it interesting for you as a 15 or 16-year-old doing that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't care. I just wanted to play what I love. Yeah. And, and, and I assume that when you were going to high school in North Las Vegas, you were not like most other kids. D- did you find a crowd to hang out with, like like the music geeks or the literary people or the theater kids? Yeah, that's the, that was my problem. I couldn't find a crowd. Um, I talked to like the same, maybe like three people every day. And like if somehow all three of those people were in like there at school, um, I would like sit by myself. But in a weird way, everyone still knew of me because it st- stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't give you, I mean, the, the horrible version of that would, and they bullied me, and they put me in the locker, and they beat me up. None, none of that stuff? No, people kind of expect that. You know, now I think back, you know, I was like, I don't know why I didn't get bullied, but I didn't. Yeah? Maybe <laughs> Las Vegas is just a paragon of progressivism in America, and it's all about... I think people don't give it its credit. Yeah. I'm, I think that, I've always defended Las Vegas. Um... You tweeted, quote, to those who keep asking, I have no gender, no sexuality. Really? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, I am a type of person that pretty much my whole life I never felt like tethered to one gender as far as like gender roles. Right. You know, like but it's not as though you have no sexuality. It's that you, you have you you're saying you have no specific fixed one. Exactly. Oh. I'm more I'm more attracted to someone's personality. And your parents were cool with this unorthodox child of theirs? My mom's a Wiccan, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And do you accept her Wiccanness? Sometimes it's hard for me. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Um, Was there music that helped you figure out 
it was okay to be me and all that stuff, or or was this all just an internal mental thing? Did- I feel like it was something that's always like been instilled in me. Mm-hmm. Um, even like at an early age, um, just kind of like you know going up to my mom and like telling her that like I don't believe in my religion anymore. Um, Which religion was that? I was raised Muslim. Uh huh. I was raised in a nation of Islam. Really? Yeah. And your mother's a Wiccan. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, it was like one of those. This is like a TV show. It was like it was like one of those things where, like, once I came out, like at an early age, and was like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with this, and she kind of realized that it was kind of you know forced upon her by her mom, and um, and kind of start find herself. So I think it was always something like it stole me at an early age, but music definitely was like a, a medium to kind of like help me kind of like do something new knowing that without all these boundaries right right so you i read you you, i know you have this super cool record label xl who have been this super cool record label for years and years and years uber cool um exactly um and you 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 signed up to be an intern there even after you'd signed a recording deal with them well i always wanted to intern at a label and (laughs) um yeah i got signed I had to move out here to record the album for three months, and I just like needed something to do while I wasn't in the studio. So, I, I was like, "Can I intern here?" I'm like, "They can't say no, right?" Like, <laughs> and they, yeah, they didn't. So, um, yeah, I actually interned under my publicist. <laughs> Your life is really. I mean, uh, they should make the movie tomorrow. It's, it's I, I, all the scenes in the biopic, or at least in the first act, are are here. Who will play me? Who should play you? Zoe Kravitz. Uh, Willow Smith? Willow Smith can definitely do it. There you go. Okay, we got two names. Um, and before I let you go entirely, will you will you play us out with another song? Yeah. And what will this one be? It's called On the Regular. On the Regular? Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> hi, hi, howdy, howdy, hi, hi. Why everyone is minus, you can call me Multiply. Just so you know, yes, yes, I'm that guy. You can get five fingers and I'm not waving high. Yes, I'm never ending. You can call me pie. But really, how long till the world realize? Yep, yep, I'm the best. What you heard? Anything less is... Obviously, I'm sorry. Hey, this is a bird. More like an eagle. This is my movie. Stay tuned for the sequel. Seems so wrong. Seems so illegal. Got this in the back like a foul ball free throw. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. I come in with the stick, with the blow, with the boom. And if you're in my way, there's nothing but boom. Ain't got no time for you, ratchet ass goons. Just settle down, listen to my tunes. Ever since I was eight, I was attached to the mic. Wanted a guitar before I wanted a bike. Had an epiphone, the Fisher Price. Never seen a song, cause I'm up all night. Really, really? Really, really? You wanna talk? But you know that I ain't really. At least to the fullest, you can call me cancer. No multiple choice, cause I'm the only answer. Ain't got no wallet, only used super bands. No, my chicken's ratchet, cause the to make a dance. Wanna get at me? You don't stand a chance. And if you wanna, yes, you can get these pants. Hey, this is a bird, more like an eagle. This is my movie, stay tuned for the sequel. Seems so wrong, seems so illegal. Got this in the back like a foul ball free throw. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. This is me on the regular, so you know. Five foot ten, about a buck twenty, skinny as a rock, but still won't quit me. Why is that? 
you think I was 50, but I took it 50 if you take the slip. See, yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. That's Shamir singing on the regular, and you can see the video of that performance at Studio360.org. I talked with Shamir after the release of his first album in 2015. His second one, Hope, was released this spring. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our intern is... Claude Gallette. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thank you very much for listening. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, why meeting a favorite writer can be a little disappointing. I work really hard in all of these books to create a better person on the page than well, I am in real life. It uh, wouldn't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, yeah, I think I think I think that's that's what writers do. I think we're never better than we are on the page. Novelists Richard Russo and Jenny Boylan on writing characters and being characters. Next time in Studio 360.